Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. He's grumbling at me. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't like the message I'm going to deliver. <laughs> Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts, the 19th chapter, beginning with verse 11. As we read this, we're going to see that this is a description of what was going on with Paul. But at the same time, you have to realize this is what was going on with the early church. So the power of Paul that we're looking at here also, when we, when we dissect it, can be what provides the power of the church. So Acts the 19th chapter, beginning in verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. The seven sons of Seba, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the, and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the, name, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number of them, who, a number who had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, it came. The total came to 50,000 drachma, and in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, our prayer is that you would bind Satan, that the clutter and the noise of this world would be silenced, that we would listen to the Holy Spirit who would be our teacher this morning. That he might touch our hearts, each and every one of us individually, and give us the message that you have from God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. During the Battle of Waterloo, England waited for news of the outcome. If Wellington could not defeat Napoleon, England had a very frightening future. And finally, from the top of Westminster, Cathedral, trained eyes read the semaphore signals. It spelled out, Wellington defeated. But then 
the fog set in and no further transmission was possible. Wellington defeated was relayed throughout England. Despair set in about the, what had become something that was very tragic to them. And they began to prepare for the very worst. What would happen to their beloved England? But later, the fog lifted and the full message was revealed. Wellington defeated was spelled out, followed by Wellington defeated the enemy. How different history would have been without those two final words. How different the church would have been if in the haze of all, the, all of history, all we could see was Paul defeated. And sometimes that is the way the situation may appear until the fog finally settles and the message reads, Paul defeated the enemy. If we look at the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, these words could be written across it with the extraordinary accounts of Paul's triumph over the powers of darkness in Ephesus. But sadly, there are so many today, so many in this world today who hear only that misinformation. They hear only the half-truth. They hear the unfinished sentence. And they believe the clutter and the noise of today's society. 300 years before Christ, a Greek philosopher, Zeno, made a statement that he would never have dreamed that could have become a powerful weapon for parents everywhere. Maybe even your parents might have quoted you, Zeno, when as a child you might have talked too much. For Zeno said this, the reason we have two ears and only one mouth is that we may listen more and talk less. If in ancient Greece, 300 years before Christ, there was such noise in our world that Zeno had to have a statement like this, what would it have been like today if Zeno were alive today? He probably would have just covered his ears. But the greatest tragedy in life isn't that people like us are invaded, our privacies invaded. Maybe even the noise gets on our nerves. It certainly can destroy your hearing. Maybe the greatest tragedy is not so much the noise that we hear, but that we can't hear the things we really need to hear. God is trying to get through to us. He's trying to get through to us with a voice of grace and wisdom. But all we hear sometimes is the clutter and the confusion and the foolish voices of society that would lead us further and further away from the truth when Jesus said, I am the truth. God is speaking, but are we listening? The early church, as you know, had many enemies. Among them were the Jews and, and Rome. At first, Rome was indifferent 
to the Christians, but then it became hostile to them. And today, our church, our churches face many enemies. First and foremost is certainly the satanic forces mustered against us. Aiding Satan in his battle against the church are the liberal political forces of our nation. Also aiding Satan in his battle against us are the people who are calling themselves progressive Christians. Saved or unsaved, it doesn't matter. If they are trying to change the scripture to meet society's idea of right and wrong, then they are battling against the church. They are battling against Christ. Yet in many ways, one of our worst enemies and one of the most subtle of our enemies, most subtly dangerous of our enemies, is that of misinformation. And as a church, how do we fight against this enemy? As individuals, how do we fight against this enemy? How do we fight against the misinformation and combat the satanic forces that continually put out misinformation that is an enemy of Christ. So I would like to speak about five elements this morning. They're critical, in my opinion, to our survival as church and as Christianity. And it is also critical to the power of the church. The first one is a very simple statement. We must preach the pure word of God and all of it. God did not give us a Bible that is a cafeteria. We do not get to pick and choose just what we want to preach. So let's look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 3, and let's begin to look at some of the preaching that, that went on from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Nehemiah 8.1 says, All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the, the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, of, uh, seventh month Ezra the priest brought out the law before the assembly, assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it from the break of day till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now just stop and think just a minute. He read it from the break of day till noon. If I preach an hour today, I guarantee you some of you will be squirming in your seats. <laughs> Sometimes you can look out and you can see if you've gone over 30 minutes, people are squirming in their seats. But these people, the scripture says, were attentive from the break of day all the way to noon. This was a public reading and an exposition of the law of Moses in the presence of all the people, it says all the people, the men and the women, 
and all who could understand. And it happened right after the settlement when they went back to rebuild Jerusalem. We need, we must have the scripture both familiarized by repetition and expounding so that we have a sense and an understanding of what God has said to us. We need and we must have the scripture as individuals. The law of God is the true foundation on which our lives must be built. In that law is not only the will of God, but the display of his mercy. The scripture, it says, makes us wise unto salvation. The law was the root out of which the gospel was given to us. So not only do we need to have the scriptures as individuals, but we need and we must have the scriptures as a nation. The Bible is the true law of nations. Sadly, heartbreakingly sadly, and God we trust is meaningless in our government. I am of the personal belief that God has removed his hedge from around us just as he did his chosen people when Israel left him. Isaiah 5, 3 through 5 says this. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I tell you, I am going to do to what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. That's what God said. To his chosen people when they left him. What scares me is what is next to come for America. Just think about how God dealt with Israel. His chosen people. So we also need the scripture as families. Men, women, and children were gathered together with Ezra for the reading. God has provided his word for our households. And those who neglect its reading neglect the best support of parental authority and a true bond of love and a fountain of joy when they reject reading those scriptures. So how then, continuing to look at Paul, how then should the word be preached? Well, let me take you then to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul talked about it. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with elegant or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and pers per persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So what was the message that Paul revealed in the power of the Spirit? 
1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16 tells us that. It says we must preach the revelation that cannot be an invention of man. The scripture says the eye of man's carnal mind has never seen it. The scripture says that the ear of man's worldly wisdom has never heard it. The scripture says neither has it entered into the heart of man except through the Holy Spirit. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. What a promise that is to us. That is just, we just should hold that promise close to our hearts. Also, we must preach a revelation from God. In those scriptures, it says, but God has revealed him, revealed them unto us. Only God can reveal the mysteries of his suffering son, the rich, the, the depth of the richness, the wisdom and the knowledge of God concerning his son. This is the glory of the gospel message. That it is as true and as gracious as the God who gave it. So what was this revelation that we must preach? It is a, the unveiling of the mystery of Christ and Him crucified. The revelation of the fact that Jesus died for our sins, rose again for our justification, and that He is coming again. It is the revelation of His abounding grace to sinful man and the power to save all that would come unto Him. And how was this revelation made known unto us? God has revealed it unto us by His Spirit. It has come from God and it comes home to the believing heart by the Spirit of God. For the Spirit searches the deep things of God, the things of God that no man knows without the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the minister of the things of Christ. He is the Spirit of truth, and He shall teach us all things concerning the revealed will of, our, of God our Father. In John 16, 13, it says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Our prayer should be, that all of His people will be taught by God through the Holy Spirit. For with such a teacher from God, there can be no excuse for spiritual poverty. For even today we see some who might have the letter of the Word and yet be strangers to the power of God through the Word. How should these things then be preached? Paul said, my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Without the Holy Spirit, preaching is without authority. There may be a demonstration of eloquent words, of fleshly energy, but without a demonstration of the Spirit, it is spiritually powerless. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive the power that after the Holy Spirit is come on upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. The Christian attitude toward divine revelation should be as Paul had. He said, I am determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In Corinth, there were many enemies. And today, we have many enemies of Christianity. But Paul knew, and we should know, one thing was needed. And that was the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
today, the worldly in their wisdom would call what we preach narrow-minded. But God has offered a divine remedy for all of the world's problems. And Paul said, I am determined. He declared this one thing I do. Christ and Him crucified must be the settled motive in our hearts and in our minds for all who serve in teaching and preaching of, the God's, of God's Word. The whole counsel of God radiates from Christ and Him crucified. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. So then the second element is that we must expose false teaching. 1 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15 says this. I will keep, this is Paul writing again, of course. I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want the, an opportunity to be considered equal with, with us in the things that they boast about. For such men, he says, are false, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. From the time of the fall, from the time of Adam and Eve, to present day, men and women have frequently succumbed to the deceptive devices of Satan. Even Christians are open to the kind of cunning deceit that combines a language of faith and religion with a content of self-interest and a flattery. We like to be told how special we are, how wise, maybe even how blessed. Some like to have their Christianity shaped less by the cross and more by a charismatic leader or subjective experience. If this shaping can be coated with an assurance of orthodoxy, complete with cliché, we may not detect the presence of the arch-deceiver Satan nor see that we are being weaned away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, being weaned away to a different gospel. The wolves in the church that devour the sheep do not howl and bare their teeth. They come in sheep's clothing, smiling, reciting scripture, full of understanding, promising something else besides Jesus Christ. Paul feared that through the satanic deception, Corinth would fall into three delusions. Another Jesus, another a different spirit, a different gospel. So we see now why he mentioned in his opening chapter that he referred to Eve as being led into sin by the subtleties of the serpent. Some in the church had been deceived by these people. And Paul was determined to open their eyes to the danger. If they continued to listen to these ministers of Satan, they themselves, he said, would be willing participants in their guilt. We all born again believers. 
when we are led by the Holy Spirit, must expose false doctrine and false teaching. That is our responsibility. The third element is that we must fear the Lord. Proverbs 1 7 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and, and discipline. So, what is fear of the Lord? Well, fear of the Lord was the chief note of the Hebrew piety. It signified something more than dread. The piety of the Jews was, was immeasurably higher than an abject terror. The fear of the Lord included reverence for His divine nature. And as we look around our society today, we look around even some churches today, the reverence for His divine nature seems to be lacking. The second thing is, it also included a sense of His divine presence. We need to be well aware that we as Christians house the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God in which He has placed His Holy Spirit in us. We stand before the Lord. Our actions should, 24-7, our actions should be in accordance with that. A sense of His divine presence. The third thing is, it included a regard for His divine will. In two ways for them. One, especially for us, the obedience to His commandments. A regard for His divine will means a obedience to His commands. The second thing for them was a submission to His appointments. The fear of the Lord constitutes the foundation on which we build. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A sense of God. A belief that He is that He reigns, that He is the source and the, and the fountain of all blessings of life. And this is the foundation on which wisdom and success and excellencies rest. Fear of the Lord is the beginning and the very substance of the knowledge which constitutes eternal life. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, and you can find this in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the fourth element. The fourth element is that we are to magnify His name. And how do we do that? Well, let's listen for a moment to very familiar scripture out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do you magnify His name? You give God your body. Before we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we may have used our body in sinful pleasures and purposes, but now we belong to Him. We want to use our body for His glory. 
The Christian's body is God's temple because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. It is our privilege to glorify Christ in our body, to magnify Christ in our body. Just as Jesus Christ had to take on himself a body in order to accomplish God's will on this earth, we too must yield our bodies to Christ that he might continue God's work through us. We must yield our members, the members of our body as instruments of righteousness for the Holy Spirit to use during God's work. The Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices, but we are to be a living sacrifice. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect illustration of a living sacrifice because He actually died as a sacrifice in obedience to the Father's will and then rose again. And today He is in heaven as a living sacrifice, bearing on His body the wounds of Calvary. He is our high priest. He is our advocate before the throne of God. And Paul gives us two reasons for this commitment. He says it is the right response for all that God has done. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, he says. And secondly, he says our commitment is our reasonable service, our spiritual worship, our reasonable service. So how do you magnify Jesus Christ? You give him your mind. The world desperately wants to con control your mind. But God wants to transform your mind. The word transform used in the scriptures is the same one used in transfiguration. It comes from our English word, which means metamorphosis. Or our English word comes from it. I said it wrong. Our English word comes from it, which means metamorphosis. It describes a change from within. The world wants to change your mind. So it exerts pressures from the outside. But the Holy Spirit will change your mind by releasing power from within. The world wants to control your thinking, and when it does, you become a conformer. When God controls your thinking, you are a transformer. God transforms our minds and makes us spiritually minded by using His Word. The more time we spend meditating on God's Word, memorizing it, making it part of our inner man, the more God will be able to use it, and He will make our mind more spiritual. So how do you magnify His name? You give Him your will. Your mind controls your body. Your will controls your mind. And many people think that they control their, their, their will by willpower. This, most of the time, will fail. It is only when we yield our will to God that His power can overtake and give us the power that we need to be victorious Christians. We surrender to our will to God through disciplined prayer. We spend time in prayer, and in that prayer we surrender to God, and we say with our Lord Jesus Christ, not my will, but thine be done. We must pray about everything and let God have his will in everything. This not only describes individual behavior, the behavior of the believer, but also of the local church. Each local church is a body of people united in Jesus Christ. And the conduct of individual members of a church affect the spiritual life of the entire church. But the lesson is clear. Glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit was given for the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ. That comes from John 16, 14. And the Spirit can use our bodies to glorify Him and to magnify Him.
So, if we have the first four elements, then the fifth will follow. We will have repentance. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's sermon certainly was in the power of the Holy Spirit, and there were certain signs that we see there. First of all, there was a deep conviction. Scripture says when they heard, when they, when they heard, they were pricked in their hearts. They felt the nails of Jesus as, as he was crucified, sticking fast in their own hearts. And when the Spirit of grace is poured out upon us, sinners will surely see that we too have pierced him. The Holy Spirit came to convict us of sin. The second thing is an open confession is seen here. It says, men and brethren, what shall we do? This burning question from the spirit-pierced hearts declares the fact that salvation must come from God. What shall we do? A convicted sinner never knows himself what to do. It is not of us. It is, uh, it is of God. Third thing is there was plain direction given. Repent and be baptized every one of you, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, Peter's words were not reform and be civilized. Peter's words were repent and be baptized. Repent was to change their minds completely regarding Jesus Christ, whom they had rejected, and to be baptized meant to be renouncing the old life and giving an open confession of Christ as their Lord. In doing this, they would receive the Holy Spirit, they would be endued with power that would, would overcome the world and would allow them to be witnesses unto, unto Jesus Christ who died and rose again for us. This gospel and the power of the Spirit is the power of God. It is the power of God to, to pierce with conviction a heart of sin. It is the power of God to compel man to confess their need. It is the power of God to bring joy of forgiveness to a believing heart. It is the power of God in fellowship of those who believe, who, who believe and obey. It is the power of God to turn self-denial into great delight. It is the power of God to, to fill the heart with praise. And it is the power of God to make your life a testimony for God. So how is it then that we might have this spirit? The scripture is very plain. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And why is it that we need to be saved? Because without Jesus Christ, we are separated from God. God has said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He has then gone on to say that the wages of sin is death which does not mean physical death. It means a separation from God for eternity. But the prettiest part, the most beautiful part of that scripture is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, scripture says you will be saved. If you will stand with me, we're going to have a word of prayer. And we're going to have a hymn of invitation. And if God has touched your heart, now is the time. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. 
Now is the time that you need to make a confession of your, of your faith. Maybe you need to, to, to rededicate your life. Whatever it is, if God is touching your heart this day, this moment, today is the day of salvation. Heavenly Father, we just come to you thanking you, Lord, for your written word. Thanking you, Lord, for and praising your name for, for being so, so gracious and forgiving us. And, Lord, providing a, a pathway that we might spend eternity in heaven with you. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Thank you.